Hey, I'm Doug Padgett, Minneapolis, where it is sunny. It's going to be 40 some odd degrees this week again. Uh, it snowed since we last talked uh, last Valentine's Day, and uh, now it's going away. So we had winter for a day, and now we're back into a Kansas City, uh, Kansas City early spring. Rob, how's Springdale, Arkansas? Uh, you know, it's uh, it's sunny. Supposed to be uh, almost 70 today, which totally makes sense for uh, you know February. You know, really? Uh, and no, no, it's oh. ridiculous. <laughs> no, no, I'm being I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. So uh, yeah, 70. Wow. Dan, how about how about outside of uh, uh, the metropolis of Grand Rapids, Michigan? <laughs> uh, yeah, vicinity region. Um, but yeah, it's it's breaking into the 40s, so no one's wearing coats, and people are acting like it's springtime, but it's not. It's actually still quite cold. So, well, everybody, hang in there. Hey, and those of you that are in the Santa Barbara area where floods have come rolling down on your lives, um, we feel for you. Uh, and we're going to be in the Santa yeah. Barbara area on March. So you know, uh, that reminds me, uh, Rob. A while back, you were reading a book called uh, "The Ministry for the Future." Mm-hmm. Great book. Yes. I started listening to it. I'm like mm-hmm. maybe three quarters of the way through, and uh, it's sort of like these fictional vignettes of the near future. And the one I just got to was uh, talking about like atmospheric rivers. And in the book, yeah. it talks about this atmospheric river that dumps tons of rain and causes flooding in California. And then I look on the news, I'm like, oh, we're in the disastrous fictional future yes. that has been predicted. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. There, was a, there was a news story last week that was about how scientists are considering um, utilizing weather changing technology in hopes of, which is again, the same thing they do. Like it, like they, it's exactly what happens in this science fiction. Like, yeah, they try to blast stuff into the atmosphere that is slightly reflective to uh, reduce the amount of sunlight getting in to drop the temperatures. Saw a, saw a news story last week about how scientists are now considering something that in the past would was like just no we're never doing that. They that, that's a genre of, of uh, writing called speculative fiction where they're not making up you know just random apocalyptic things they're like just extrapolating forward the yeah. speculation of yes. what what we could do so oftentimes that stuff is fairly accurate so far. Hey, and Jim has a, well, by the way, congratulations, Kimberly. She mentions in the chat here, yay, I'm early for a change. But that's only because we started 28 minutes late, Kimberly. So we're, uh, we're working. Late <laughs> <laughs> uh, right allowed you to be early. Uh, we will, uh, so glad to have you uh, anytime you get here. Hey, and Jim asked the question, when are we going to be in Santa Barbara? And we're going to be in Santa Barbara on March 7th. Uh, you can go to votecommongood.com. And you'll see all of our events there, and you'll see one happening in Santa Barbara, a uh, event around faith and democracy with writer and uh, uh, movie executive producer Catherine Stewart, who had her book adapted into a documentary film called God and Country. Uh, anyway, we're going to be doing an event with her, and we'd love to uh, love to see you, Jim, or anybody else in the Santa Barbara area at that free event on the evening of March 7th. 
So, and, and by the way, if you're interested in any of our stuff, like if we talk about the eclipse today and you say, wow, I didn't even remember there was going to be a solar event of a lifetime. Well, there is, and you can come join us. The great eclipse is coming. It's going to change a lot of things for a lot of people. And, and I'll tell you, our astrophysicist, uh, Paul Wallace, he says that these kinds of eclipse, which he's had a somewhat of an experience with one, are absolutely life-changing. So we're going to be in the yeah, first um, place in the United States where this eclipse is taking place. And we are the, it's on the path of totality, which in and of itself is just a great phrase, meaning that there's a total eclipse happening there in a little town called Eagle Pass, Texas, which might sound familiar to many of you because we were there trying to stop the uh, Christian nationalist trucker convoy. And what they really wanted to be known for in Eagle Pass this this winter is uh, the host site for um, the best place to experience the eclipse as it comes right over the Rio Grande River. Um, and we're going to be there. So we'd love to have you join us. All that stuff and many of our other events, including border tours and uh, democracy events and Christian nationalist training events, all at votecommongood.com. So be sure you get over there. Because we are more than a podcast. A we have to drive around and say stuff to people. Yeah, I, I'd like to ask a question. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, a caller from somewhere outside Springdale, Arkansas. Go ahead, Rob. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, hey, first time, long time. Uh, hey, Doug, <laughs> could you explain to us? How an eclipse is life changing? I was curious. Is that hyperbole? Like in what in, way? Like yeah. what, in what ways is it life? How will my life be That's different? It. And maybe this is a question for Paul on I, Thursday. I, I mean, maybe. I, like, are we talking about Donald Trump staring at the eclipse and now is unable to? see well and that's life change like in what ways is it life changing <laughs> it could change your life if you don't wear the glasses yeah i am having a flashback to seventh grade health class when the some of the kids were saying oh, no teacher tell us how it is that sexual experiences can be so great we've never had one we don't know we're in seventh grade i, I don't even understand why people would ruin their lives over such <laughs> this raises more questions <laughs> Uh, kids really uh, ask that question in your seventh yeah. grade health class. How yeah, is this a different spiritual experience? Yeah. Different time. It's a different time. No, no. How? Yeah. How, yes. Yes. Seventh, seventh grade man. I'll tell you. Seventh grade uh, in the seventies for me was a very confusing time. Seventh grade uh, health class. We had a very trippy, very trippy uh, uh, teachers. Um, in fact, my English teacher in seventh grade, uh, Mrs. Larson, used to get high mm. during the breaks. Between class and just sit on her desk cross-legged she's like a hippie it was unbelievable yeah. just there yeah and then i smoked marijuana for the first time as a seventh grader with the activity bus driver <laughs> i know the after school bus, <laughs> it's normal. with the activity yeah, the driver. 70s were a wild time and then he drove us home he drove us home <laughs> yeah he's got a job to do <laughs> I am not, <laughs> my life. I, I am not even making that up. Both of those, all three, of them, absolutely true. Okay. Um, all right. We have we we've, we've we've chatted about this enough. We have to get to the really important stuff. I'm sorry. I'm I'm. Thank you. <laughs> I knew exactly what story was the most important yeah. to talk about. Donald Trump's Donald sneaker Donald line. Trump's- <laughs> okay. Somehow I'm. I'm, I'm so, somehow I'm, I missed all this. I'm, don't know. Can you, I, I saw headlines, uh, but I was I was super not on rhythm this weekend. We we're off doing a big surprise party for somebody, so I wasn't paying attention to things. Oh. 
did he really launch a shoe line that people could yes. buy shoes to try to pay for his? Yeah, his from Donald Trump. Sh- yeah. So, so uh, there was a, uh, a sneaker con. I don't know, Dan, have you ever, uh, um, attended a sneaker? No, con? no. Um, I, I haven't either. I know um, what it is, but yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a, a convention of s- people who love sneakers, um, I can explain you know, shout out, why that shout out to, Brit- to our other one. Sorry. I, I missed that, Doug. I can explain to you later why that would be life-changing if you were to ever attend a sneaker con. So, <laughs> yeah, excellent. It's be a spiritual experience for you. Um, shout out to to our friend Britton, who uh, apparently is a uh, one of these sneaker people. Um, yeah, so there's like a whole sneaker subculture where mm-hmm. people love their sneakers. Donald mm-hmm. Trump showed up, and and apparently this was not. This was not leaked ahead of time. This was like, you know, he kind of came out on he came out on stage. He showed up at the sneaker con and announced his line of sneakers. And he had oh a pair God. of them. Um a, a pair of sneakers that uh, like they are gold. They have a big oh. T on the side. They've got a little uh red, white and blue flag thing. Um and they are Going for I don't know three hundred four hundred five hundred dollars I think depending on the 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 sizes whoever this headline that we've got here on the screen whoever came up with hair Jordans <laughs> oh that's good I I I wish I had come up with hair Jordans that is an excellent excellent thing uh, yeah so yeah this was. Right after it was announced, I mean, the day after it was announced that Donald Trump uh, is guilty of uh, fraud, as he already was, but the the punishment was going to be, I think, a total of $364 million. Um, You know, right after that, uh, you know, Trump comes out with this line of sneakers that he's going to sell. And apparently at the sneaker con, they auctioned off a a pair of signed sneakers mm. and a guy bought them for $9,000. Wow. Which wow. It sounds like a lot, but then you remember Donald Trump owes almost a million dollars a day. For- <laughs> <laughs> $364 million plus $83.8 million, you know. And those yeah. are just in fines. Going to have to sell a lot of fees. sneakers. Yeah. And oh, uh, think, Alex I, points out he I, was booed while on stage at this event. Like people were not pleased universally <laughs> that he was there. <laughs> Listen, yes. next year, like in December, when like when we are like when I'm making the list of like the craziest political stories of 2024. Is there a chance that Donald Trump's sneakers are not number one on the list? <laughs> this is the craziest thing. Uh, we still got a lot of year left for Donald Trump to do yeah, some that, even crazier that, stuff. So, whatever shoes he chooses to wear as he reports to federal uh, prison could be <laughs> a a sneaker story that even beats out this story. Because Mike makes a good point in the in the chat. Why wasn't Donald Trump wearing the very shoes that he was there pitching? Uh, un, uh, unwearable are they, Don? Uh, I, I, I just, don't know. I, the, the trashiness of this whole 
enterprise, right? The unseriousness, the, the idea that somehow this guy's audience are is sneaker con people and sneaker wearers because that that is oh, you know I, I this is the unusual. same with him selling NFTs. It was like yes. his audience are not like the it's, NFT it's, audience. It's bizarre. Yeah. State oh. or ties or, or or fake degrees. I mean, just the ultimate in scam uh, artistry is this fella. It's it's really really something. You know, you know. I have long thought at some point Don's just going to come out and tell us all it was all a big con. Like he was just trying to destroy the Republican <laughs> Party permanently in America. And he was the inside plant that was seeking to do that. But now he's just damaged so many lives. I'm like, okay, that's probably not actually, probably not actually true because it, you can't get worse than this. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I just put on the screen a meme that uh, Britain sent to me. It's a guy named Mark Agee. He says, tried hooping in these, but all I could do was draw charges <laughs> of oh, the Trump shoes. That's brilliant. pretty great. Brilliant. Pretty good. Basketball Look at these. Look the- at these nice things. Basketball reference. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So bad. Uh, just just so bad. And and, and let's not craziest let... What's the craziest pair of sneakers you, you ever owned, Doug? You're, you were a basketball player and had to special... Do you think these come in size 13s? You were 13? Well, I wore 13s in fifth grade. I wore 13s. Little boy. No, I actually wore 14. Uh, I I played basketball in a size 17 shoe. There's no doubt Donald Trump makes a size 17 in his crappy gold-colored, probably China-made sneakers. Oh, definitely China-made. I'm getting those in in a... in a 17. Um, these are, I just have shoes. Donald Trump can't, can't seem to fit. Um, all right. Uh, let's not, let's not miss the fact though, that with all the nonsense that this stirs up, because it is more interesting, Donald Trump was found to be fraudulent in his business practices over mm-hmm. decades, unwilling to admit to the fraud when he was caught in the fraud and then find the amount of money that the judge could determine were the illegal gains that he made on behalf of that fraud. $350 million. And then there's interest on it going back to the time when he committed the fraud. So he didn't get to keep the money, and then they charged interest. So it's up over $400 million in just that judgment. And then you throw in the $80 million, $84 million that he owes to Eugene Carroll, and the legal fees, and you're talking half a billion dollars that this failed businessman who's leveraged through the teeth is going to have to liquidate. All the money his dad gave him that he has squandered away to wind himself up in this position, because, you know, all that stuff we heard back in 2016 and, and so on, that had Donald Trump simply put the money in the stock market or a bank account that his father gave him, he would have had more money than what he says he currently has. His dad gave him so much money, squandered it all. Now he's being fined half a billion dollars. It's going to leave him at the end of life with a net negative of the amount of money he started with. It's incredible. Can't take away what you, a, Ab, Good point. 
and if you can't take it with you, you might as well give it to the state government of <laughs> New York. I, I mean, and, and look, I, you know, we were texting about this. I love the idea that MAGA supporters now are going to take their hard-earned money, hard-earned, and send it to Donald Trump so he can pay his legal fines, and they're going to feel good about that. That's great. People can spend their money however they want. That they're going to give their money to the state of New York to pay the fines and then also boycott ever going to New York. But meanwhile, they're going to give the money to the state of New York by, by paying Donald Trump's fines. It, it is just, um, we're, we're into a level of, of uh, fan fiction here that is really costly for, for so many people. And the legality to, on Donald Trump just keeps unfolding yeah. on him. Yeah. Um, now, a and, lot of people will probably never be satisfied that any part of our justice system will ever, you know, land uh, consequence to the degree that it needs to because of all the situations that go on with the former president. But this financial stuff is pretty dang severe. This is this is about as bad as you uh, as you get. Yeah, and you know, in both cases, both the fraud case in New York and the Eugene Carroll case, which are the two cases so far that Donald Trump has been found guilty um, won't be the last time he'll be found guilty. Um, but in these two cases, one of my favorite parts uh, of them is the reality that um, Donald Trump cannot appeal either of these decisions, either of these judgments until he pays the fine. Yeah. The f like, it's not the type of thing where he can just appeal, you know, no. and appeal and appeal and appeal and, you know, to keep from having to pay the fine. Uh, the fine has to be paid and held in escrow uh, un before an appeal can be filed, which is just oh wow, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, but, there's a know, lot of concern what Donald Trump is going to do. He's going to have to get a bond for this amount of money because he, do he doesn't have it. He's, he's not wealthy yeah. like that. He doesn't have half a billion dollars uh, liquid right? <laughs> and not even have access to it. It's tied yeah, up in value of buildings that have to yeah, be sold. So he's going to have to and get a loan or get a bond. And there's people deeply concerned about where that money's going to come from. And do you know where it yeah. very likely could come from? Saudi Russia. Arabia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kushner's deal or some private loan through Kushner's wealth group, his son, um, Jared Kushner and his daughter Ivanka's um, side hustle that they did while working in the White House, that they, Donald Trump's legal fees could be covered, at least in the bond uh, portion, you know, until the money has to be um, uh, fully transferred into the bank account of the state of New York from foreign governments. Mm -hmm. So, so. In all the stuff, the emoluments clauses and all that stuff we talked about in 2016 <laughs> yeah. had to worry about, here it goes yeah. again that he very well yeah. could get some, some, you know, sovereign fund and that's where the money's going to come from. Cause he's not going down to, you know, your, your local bail bondsman. 
and trying to put down 10%. You <laughs> imagine the assistant manager at the uh, the credit union down on the corner in, in Florida, like Don, Donald Trump's walking in saying, yeah, like, the guy's just like, uh, I just got back from vacation. I don't know how to, like, uh, you know. But, but liquid. There's, there's bad news and there's bad news. Um, the bad news is that um, uh, there's bad news and bad news, but there's good news for Donald Trump. Um, the good news for Donald Trump is, um, well, I'll do the bad news first. Doug, the uh, the never surrender high tops don't come in size 16. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, they only go up to size 13. Uh, they come in a seven? So. Because I can't, I can't, can't play in 16s. Hurt my feet. I need a 17. Uh, well, yeah, they only, they only go up to 13. So you're out of luck. Um, that's going to be your there Christmas you present too. So, yeah. Now you can track. Um, the the other bad news is that they're sold out. Yeah. Who, who who makes a basketball shoe? A basketball shoe that doesn't fit basketball players. Hmm. You don't make yeah, basketball shoes excellent. and run them up to a size thirteen unless you're selling to junior hires, um, <laughs> and that might be what their uh, what their basketball plans are. Doug. But they are sold out. They're sold out. Oh. So, you know, the good Excellent. news for Donald Trump is when you that he's make ten pairs. So, yeah, well, a thousand <laughs> it looks like. Um, but there is there's cologne for sale on his website, and uh, and the yeah, it, the Trump victory cologne is really just just amazing. As I can't well. wait for Trump uh, to just be like a regular fixture on QVC, like selling random products. Like that's, yeah, that feels sure. like where all this is headed. Just like when, when he's under house arrest in Mar-a-Lago after it's been re-leveraged and, you know, he, he's got some co-owner uh, and he's under house arrest there. And all he's doing is pitching stuff on uh, cable television. <laughs> that is, that is quite, uh. quite like. Uh, setting up a little bunker in there. You know, when he came out, we can stop talking about him here in a minute, but when he came out with his like totally uh, bogus judgment and he was standing on those stairs with the backdrop around him, um, Mm. it was as if he didn't know this was coming. And I really wonder if, because he lives in this world, you know, which he talks about very openly, that's built around the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale and all that, who he says is kind of his mentor in all of this. And he's taken it to a whole new level that he just truly did not think that the judgment would come against him because they didn't seem at all prepared, at all prepared for a judgment to come out at this, uh, at this level and just saying the same things over and over. No one was wronged. They all got paid, uh, interest. Didn't say I didn't, I wasn't fraudulent, just said, Hey, there was no, yeah. there, there was no, no fault here yeah. or there, there was no harm yeah. done. Like, there no was total harm. To keep the basketball theme going. No blood, no foul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, just t- technical foul. If, uh, if nothing else. And- hey, can we talk about uh, the, the other uh, guy running for president and the fact that he raised $42 million uh, in January? Yeah. And I'll tell you. And by the way, see- I, 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 I like this look. By the way, I like this. Uh, I like the. I like the. You know, the little quarter zipper. Uh, you know, with the with the suit jacket on top. I like. I like this look. You like the collar up? That's feeling good to you. You pop, like the fact yeah, that pop he's the collar, a- Joe. 
a yeah. newspaper. I like this look. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He looks, I mean, he's elderly, the Fonz. (laughs) 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 Okay. Now we reach out. $42 million. Um, Yeah. I think there must be Um, a delay. Republicans are getting absolutely smashed by Democrats right now in terms of political fundraising. Um, you know, the Republican Party has spent so much of its money on Donald Trump's legal fees um, and and Donald Trump himself, while he remains someone who can fundraise well because, you know, he has people who are willing to throw money at him for sneakers and NFTs and toilet water and in all of that, like mm-hmm. they, they are Joe Biden absolutely crushed the uh, the final quarter of 2023 with his uh, FEC filing uh, that was due um, the end of January, forty two million dollars, absolutely crushing it, and one hundred and thirty million dollars cash on hand. And as this article that we found this information in goes on to say, and a lot of people have talked about, they really didn't even start up their reelection campaign until late in 2023. Like they're just getting going. And um, I know there's an enthusiasm gap. A lot of us experience it and can feel it. And the feeling that, oh, you've got to be kidding. How are we still in a situation where this is it? Like we're, we're literally going to relitigate 2020. Um, mm-hmm. Four years later, uh, it feels really not great uh, to, to anyone. The actual apparatus that it takes to move voters into action uh, will still roll on, right? And how people feel about it um, is a thing that sometimes, and, and I know that, that some political pundits give a lot more credence to it and, and others give less. I tend to give less to it. I guess if someone's unwilling to go out and vote, that's different than how do they feel about the circle that they're filling in in the voting booth. Like how much enthusiasm you have about filling that circle in doesn't actually make any difference. And I understand that it makes a difference if people choose not to go into the voting booth or choose right. not to fill in that circle. But the the amount of enthusiasm, it, it, we're not actually watching people in a spectator sport and you as the fans are giving energy that then is going to actually impact a player on a field. This isn't politics is not sports. So I, I guess the apparatus that's in place is more important than how fervently people feel about it or how fervently people feel about it in places where it doesn't matter. You know, that's the other brutality of, the electoral college at the presidential level is that in 45, 40 to 45 states, it kind of doesn't matter because the, the, the situation is settled. We know how many votes there are going to be for Democrats and Republicans in each of those states. And we know how those numbers are going to divide out and it's going to be pretty even. Then you'll come down to five, seven or 10 states in which it's going to make a difference. And that's it. 
that's that's how this that's how this all actually works. And Hillary Clinton's campaign was a great example of it. And Donald Trump's campaign in 2016 was a great example of it. And then Joe Biden's massive victory in 2020 was a another example of it. Yeah. So I don't. What, what do you guys think? I mean, I I just think that the money raised is a big deal because it allows for operations yeah. and it allows for motivation and all. But the yeah. enthusiasm thing. I I'm not just trying to be you know like tell myself everything's going to be all right. Uh, by the way, I saw the Bob Marley movie this weekend. Have you guys seen Speaking the Bob Marley movie? Yeah, I heard it. Right. Heard it's really good. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm excited about it. I just, just had no idea that Bob Marley's contact for much of his work was in the middle of a near-on civil war in Jamaica and two rival political parties um, that were killing each other and try, tried to assassinate him that his music, especially the Exodus album, sort of his big one, was right in the middle of that and it was centered around him doing a peace concert that brought both political party heads on the stage together. And he said, we have to be Jamaica as one people. So all that like happy, you know, sort of don't worry, be happy music was actually counter messaging to a, like a context of a civil war. It was just, it was remarkable to, to learn all that. I didn't, I knew the Rastafarian stuff, had no idea about the political context of all that. Um, yeah. But yeah. anyway, I, I, what do you guys think about this political, yeah. How enthusiasm so, thing. Yeah, I think I, I think enthusiasm is a huge indicator um, about how elections are going to go. And I totally hear you, Doug. That like being enthusiastic about a candidate doesn't make your vote weightier than if you were unenthusiastic. Your vote counts like it counts. It counts as one, and that's you know regardless if you're holding your nose or if you, you know, first in line because you can't wait. At the same time, what the enthusiasm does is um, it overcomes the barriers to voting. Uh, it's raining today in Georgia. Uh, uh, I don't know if I'm going to go vote, you know, like, uh, you know, there's, there's some like there are what the enthusiasm does is it it overcomes those kinds of things and it's also contagious and uh, if you're enthusiastic about the person that you're going to be voting for that has an impact on your network the people that you come into contact with and whether or not they vote and that your enthusiasm can rub off or you know if you're not enthusiastic that you could like that could be leaving votes on the table. So the enthusiasm thing is a concern for me for the Biden campaign. At the same time, you know, I, I do a lot of work with, with political candidates. I do a lot of work with fundraisers for political candidates. And there is a refrain over and over and over again, that in democratic circles, there is significant donor fatigue. Um, donors are worn out. They're worn out by the sky is falling emails. They're worn out by the, hey, this is Nancy Pelosi. I was just texting you to ask you to blah, 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 blah. You know, <laughs> they're worn out with all of that. They're like, and, and so I have talked to candidates that are feeling that pressure and to see Joe Biden raise $42 million in this last quarter is like a, oh, oh, 
Well, that's a good sign. Mm-hmm. Now, what might not be a good sign with that is that in 2020, I, I'm going to say it's a good sign, and then I'm also going <laughs> to to pull it back. In 2020, Joe Biden had no coattails. He did not help down ballot candidates at all. Um, you know, for instance, Nebraska's second congressional district, um, which is um, kind of that weird. Uh, place in Nebraska that always goes blue. Um, and Joe Biden won that congressional district. And the Democrat running for Congress in that uh, in that district lost badly. Um, and it's a significant step back for Democrats compared to, you know, Joe Biden had no coattails in, ter- in the congressional elections. So it's a little bit concerning that if people are donating to him, in his presidential campaign, but not donating to congressional candidates around the country, it, it makes me worry that we could be headed towards another instance of Joe Biden winning, winning convincingly, but that not helping Democratic candidates down ballot. Yeah. So yeah. all well, that to say, enthusiasm matters, the TLDR, enthusiasm matters. This is a good sign for Joe Biden because it bucks the trend of of donor fatigue. And even that concerns me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, 42 million oh. is a sign of someone's enthused about this campaign. Yep. You know, that money is yep. enthusiasm in a lot of ways. But I, th- I think enthusiasm is almost the wrong word for some people. I feel like... There was a time when Joe Biden was just, the critique was, well, he's kind of boring, uh, but he's getting stuff done. And so that was an enthusiasm thing where like, well, of course I'm still going to vote for him, but it's not an exciting moment, an exciting candidate like Barack Obama or whatever. But now I feel like Biden is actively losing support of a huge swath of the Democratic Party because of his perceived inaction in Gaza and because of his border policies. And I think that's the real problem. It's not that people aren't super excited. It's that Biden is sort of betraying the values of a lot of Democratic voters. And I think that's the bigger problem here. Yeah, that, right. right. That's, a, that's a solid point, that there's a difference between enthusiasm and support. And that's a thing that I, I think is worth... Those are two different conversations, but most of the time I'm hearing people talk about the enthusiasm gap as the thing that they're bothered by. Like, okay, they're go- people are going to vote, but they don't feel good about it or they don't feel all that motivated about it. That's different than are you willing to sit out and not vote for a person because you disagree with their behavior as president on any particular issue. That's a, yeah, that that is another thing. But Rob, I guess I want to just ask the question, does it really do that? I mean, I know that it, it feels like wisdom that I would agree with for sure. Like, Hey, if I tell you the Bob Marley movie is, you know, really worth seeing, uh, or you should go see God and country this weekend that, that gets in somebody's mind. They're like, yeah, I know I heard about this and maybe we should think any kind of, that that works like that. I'm just not yeah. sure that 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 I would love to see data on enthusiasm yeah. question to actual outcome because I think there is an entire industry funded 
on this enthusiasm stuff. And, and I'm just not entirely sure that that's actually how it works because you're talking about something that as Americans is something more people participate in singularly than any other singular thing, right? Mm-hmm. 160 million, 170 million people. The idea that enthusiasm... How many people watch the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah, how many people in the United States did watch the Super Bowl? Do you know? I don't know. I don't, it I was, don't I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't I'll know. Check. But, I'll check. Yeah. Um, the enthusiasm, like... I, I don't know. I think... Million. 123? Yeah. So more people vote there, than watch the Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, more, more people vote, and and that, and that probably includes children, and children don't get to vote anyway. So, uh, yeah. as, as certain adults, like this is a big deal that people are structurally engaged in, and and I don't know because, and that's your comments about coattails is I think something that we also think should come with the enthusiasm. Like, hey, I like a president, Barack Obama. No coattails, lost governorships all over the country, lost Senate, lost the House. I think the old idea that somehow the president is the party and you're just going to go down ticket based on the president, I think even that's been uh, that's been lost. Either people don't vote, yeah. like a lot of people voted for Republicans and didn't vote for Trump, or a lot of people voted for Biden and then voted for a Republican uh, for other positions or didn't vote uh, down ticket. So I, I don't know. I guess... I, yeah. I, I mean, I know a lot of us are motivated and we should be by kind of the pop psychology of all of this. And I certainly spend my time in that arena. But at this point, we're now getting into actual, you know, strategic movements of what people and who and how and how are they going to vote. And again, we're talking about a difference that might come down to 10 or 15 or 20,000 people in each of five states, which someone then could make the argument that enthusiasm uh, actually is the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and it might, it, yeah, it might turn out to be not enthusiasm, but, you know, given what, what Dan talked about with the, the fracture that seems to be opening within the Democratic Party because of Joe Biden's, um, Israel policies and, or lack thereof, it might be a question of which group comes home. Will, Republicans come home to Donald Trump or will Democrats come home to Joe Biden? You know, in because both Joe Biden and Donald Trump have, they've got their base of people that are going to vote for him no matter what. And they have people that maybe voted for them in the past, um, that voted for them in the past who are now skeptical of voting for them again and yeah. saying that they won't. And so which one of those groups comes home and actually, if both of them stay away and don't vote, Joe Biden wins re-election. If both of them come home, Joe Biden wins re-election. If only one of them comes home, then you don't know, you don't quite know what's going to happen. So um, I think that's going to be an interesting question of which, which splinter group comes home. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right on. And where? And where they do, right? And again, right, right. We, we can and but should. Joe Biden is losing significant 
it seems that he is losing significant votes from significant support from Muslim communities in Michigan and Minnesota, where like those votes matter. Like though, like that matters. That's not like, well, he's losing some votes in, you know, in, I don't know. What's a, what's a, you know, a oh, blue yeah. state, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. California. Yeah, but this is why a, yeah. people in New are Jersey. Doesn't yeah. matter. This is why people are upset with John Stewart, uh, because John Stewart is back uh, after like nine years of being away, and mm-hmm. uh, he took a swing uh, at President Biden, and people were not happy about it. This headline reads: John Stewart reacts to Daily Show backlash. "Quote: I have sinned against you." And of course, he's joking there and didn't back away from from what he said and his critique. Uh, but what did you guys see any of these clips? What did you th- make of this whole, you know, A, Jon Stewart not holding back when it comes to Biden and B, the backlash from the left wing saying, don't do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, t- I am, I am tired of the Democratic uh, folks who are just, blindly loyal the the blue no matter who kind of crowd like i listen as i have said often and will continue to say joe biden is not entitled to the presidency if someone runs against him in the democratic primary that's not helping donald trump like that Mm -hmm. like it's a primary like dean phillips is not helping donald trump like he's not Mm -hmm. now if he points out things that you know hurt Joe Biden, that's a Joe Biden problem. You think you think you think Dean Phillips is gonna come up with something about Joe Biden that that Donald Trump's team isn't gonna come come on. Like listen, if John Stewart criticizes Joe Biden, like that's a Joe Biden problem. Like no one's vote belongs to a politician. No seat belongs to a politician. The votes belong to the people, and it's the politician's job to make the case of why I should cast my vote for you. And if you can't do that in a primary, if you can't do that in a general election, if you can't do that in the places where you need to do that, that's on you. And if you can't, if Joe Biden can't convince us that he should be president instead of Cornell West or instead of Jill Stein or instead of Dean Phillips or b- instead of RFK Jr., that's on him. And if if Joe Biden does stuff that John Stewart wants to critique and make fun of, like, OK, like that's on him. Like this whole like, oh, well, we've got to protect him. We've got to. No, that's not how any of this works. That's not how this works. Right. I think the critique about Jon Stewart, though, and, and I've held this for, for a long time, it, he needs to pick a lane. And look, if he wants to be a comedian. Why? Well, I was going to finish it with my next sentence. Should, should I keep going? <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Poor Doug's monologue got interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> Say more about the thing you're literally saying right now. Uh, He should pick a lane. If he wants to be a comedian that's not on a side and I just go after both because that's what comedians do, fair enough. 
That's what comedians do. If you at the same time want to be a social commentator with a particular vantage point, then you are going to not feel supported by people that don't believe that your samisms that you want to use in your comedic bit are actually you commenting on the social situation we find ourselves in. So this is a thing that for all the people who think that comedic news coverage, this is why, I mean, for just for me, 20 years ago when Jon Stewart was on doing all this stuff, I'm like, and people are like, oh, I get my news from Jon Stewart. I would hear it all the time. Like, that is not a news source, right? Uh, Fox News is increasingly not a news source. It's a political opinion page. Comedic mm -hmm. bits about politics is not news about politics. Right. So I think what people are frustrated with with Jon Stewart is that he has a show, The Daily Show, doing a thing. What about ism and sameism and and all this and you know even handedness and I'm not on either side. I'm just a comedian. I remember his big rant. He went on like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, look, when he was critiquing Tucker Carlson and other people on Fox News, or maybe it was Bill O'Reilly. He said, Bill O'Reilly, you're a news guy. You have to tell the truth. Remember this whole bit that he did. And he said, I'm yeah, a I comedian. I'm on. I'm on Comedy Central. After me is a cartoon. Does John Stewart still really see himself just as a lowly comedian doing comedic work? Fair enough if that's how he sees himself. But that's not how he's built himself in the years he's been off of that show. He even had the whole thing with John Stewart. And now other comedians uh, have whole news things where they really are quite funny, but they also have a point. And I think what people felt like with John Stewart was, wow, you chose to go back to a period of time where the media and the news media and the comedic media thought that this stuff didn't actually have consequences to it. So if that's the place you want to be in, then fair enough, but I find it uninteresting. I think that's the critique that people had. Not keep your hands off Joe Biden, don't say anything bad about Joe. It wasn't about, did he say something about Biden or did he say something about Trump? It was, is this who you are, John Stewart? Because fair enough, if that's that, then you know maybe... Maybe this isn't as interesting uh, as social commentary uh, in the political in the in the humor context. I think that's the critique. Now, 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 maybe I'm just dra dragging my old, you know, like 2005, 2008 John Stewart commentary or critique into this, but but that's why I think it's different. Yeah, I think the pick a lane thing doesn't resonate with me. Uh, like there are no lanes. <laughs> like this is right. like people when an athlete chooses to speak yeah. out about politics or whatever it's like yeah just shut up and dribble or whatever it's like no we're all we contain multitudes we can do two things at the same time and i think in the years since uh you know john stewart sort of started this new genre of funny news uh like john oliver is another good example mm -hmm. of like super funny and also i learn a lot when i watch about yeah. specific issues right. and so to try to take those apart and say well you can't count it because you laughed while you learned about this very serious well, I'm issue. Not, I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not saying you can't laugh. I'm saying there's a role, there, there's a kind of comedic approach. So John Stewart versus John Oliver. John Oliver says, "I'm going to be funny." Comedy, humor, what all the emotions are totally fair game. 
What he's not doing, John Oliver, is saying both sidesism is the thing comedians do. I swing at both sides. That's not that not I, every comedian's approach is. I don't two hear sides John is. Stewart giving any sort of both sides, two sides ism. I think comedians, uh, like many artists, are the prophets of our day. They they point out the ridiculousness of uh, reality, and so I think. Yeah, he's not going to hold back when it comes to like our team or whatever. And I, but that's why I really appreciate what he does. But I, yeah, I, I guess not what, all comedians um, are the prophets of our time. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of just jokes about genitals. But yeah, some essayists are are prophets of our time. Some musicians are. Some visual artists are. Like just because you're a comedian doesn't put you in a category that's somehow special. But look, I. I guess I, I, I want to say in the media landscape, I don't think we should say um, that OAN is equal to the New York Times because there's really no difference and who really knows and it's just sameism. You know, there, Anybody everyone, saying that? Uh, yeah, I think by saying things like we can't really differentiate if a com- a comedian is equal to a political commentator we can't differentiate if a political commentator chooses to use uh, a comparative analysis and a comedian chooses to say i'm not on either side or so so that that's the critique it's it's as if there's only one way to be comedic Right. And John Stewart used to say, I'm a comedian. You're the news guy. Mm-hmm. That was his critique of Bill O'Reilly. Now he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm the news guy who's a comedian. Well, he used to critique that he was doing a different thing than what Bill O'Reilly is doing. And if so, that John Stewart, I appreciate. Fair enough. And I just think people should listen to him when he says, don't come to this daily show for news because that's not what I'm doing. I'm telling you I'm doing comedy, right? So I feel like he used to make a clarification between his roles. But Dan, I hear you saying, no, even he's, there is no difference between being a, because I don't think it's equal to a basketball player talking about politics because he's not using his basketball to do it. He, he, he's not using the craft of his sport to do it. John Stewart is using the craft of his, of his comedy. I think that's where the, 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 the rub comes. And I guess I, I just I, don't, I, that doesn't bother me. <laughs> no, like, do you think, John, be, be you, John Stewart, if you're going to be some hybrid, like, okay, that's you. Like, do your thing. Like, yeah, and, sure. And but then and this whole well, like be, don't criticize Joe Biden like come on. But I like, think you're why saying not? but you're saying don't criticize John Stewart. I, I mean look no, at people want to say no I'm not no I'm not I think so I no I'm not I, what I'm saying is like it, it, in the same way that it's Joe Biden's responsibility to convince us to vote for him it's John Stewart's responsibility to convince us to watch him. And if you don't want to watch John Stewart do like criticize Joe Biden, turn the channel. Like that's fine. 
Like, do your thing. Like, okay, but but I don't think that's what you were saying when you said when the critique was, "Hey, John Stewart, um, you don't have to coddle Joe Biden." So, so no, the critique. Was, no, my critique is not of John Stewart. My critique is of the people criticizing John Stewart. Like, he's allowed to do his thing. And people I know, are those, allowed to criticize him if they want, but like, yeah. but to say, oh, you can't, like, to, to somehow, like, say that, well, if you are a, you know, Democrat supporting, then, you know, or left leaning in some way, as John Stewart is, and everybody knows that, and like, then you can't criticize, like, come on, like, that's not how this works. No one is saying it's you like can't the same thing. Like you're not allowed to primary an incumbent. That's not how this no. works. Like yes, you are. That's not what the the critiques about John Stewart, the ones that are up on the screen, and the other ones that are out. They're not that John Stewart can't critique Joe Biden. No one is saying that. That so, so was here's the criticism. I like this. What aboutism? Like you know. But did you like, hear what well, John Stewart did? Basically, he did the f both these guys. America deserves better. Okay. Yes, that and which that. is exactly what we have said on this podcast. <laughs> no, it's not exactly what we've said on this podcast. It's not what I've said on this podcast. I've said there is a marked difference between people who I agree with on some topic and people who are actively destroying the foundation of American politics and jurisprudence. That is not sameism. That, and I'm not saying, dear leader, we can't say anything bad about Biden. We will say stuff about Biden. But what, but the critique here is that people who looked at John Stewart and said, Hey, you've come back after a hiatus. You're running the same old stuff you used to run and I'm tired of it. And I don't think it works and I want nothing to do with it. I hear people saying, Hey, you can't critique John Stewart like that. They're just saying, I'm tired of it, not watching it. That seems old to me. That, that kind of approach is not a thing that I think even works in, in entertainment anymore. That's their approach. So rather than saying, yeah, look, a lot of people are tired of John Stewart's shtick. People are supporting John Stewart by saying to the people critiquing John Stewart, you shouldn't be critiquing John Stewart for doing the thing John Stewart is doing. I think that's what we're in this meta thing about who's, because when we I started this. I don't even this, know what we're uh, talking about anymore. You started this bit by saying, this is like people saying you can't critique Joe Biden. And that's not what people were saying. People but that were seems saying like John's what Keith Oberman is saying. Like he's like he's critiquing the both sidesist, as he says, fraud John Stewart bashing Biden. Mm -hmm. But I don't think John Stewart is saying both sides are equally bad. He's saying we deserve better than Joe Biden. But yes, we'll still vote can, for Joe Biden. Yes. Like, <laughs> and you can say, like, F both these guys, the country deserves better. Yes, like that can be true, and I'm going to vote for Joe Biden absolutely without of a question, course. and I'm going to work as hard as I can to get him elected because like, th there's a qualitative difference between why these guys are bad, one is evil and one is old, like th there's a qualitative right. difference. But at but the now, same time, they're both past the line of what we need as a country. Okay, but now you're saying, let's critique Jon Stewart on the standard of being a commentator. 
Okay? No, so I, it, I, I'm not labeling John Stewart as anything as a comedian or a commentator. I'm like, he's just John Stewart. He runs a well, okay. I'm an old school John Stewart. He runs a show on Comedy Central, which is followed by cartoons. He's a comedian. He, so, uh, okay. Yeah, cool. So, so he's this a comedian is what who I would, talks about the news, who, whose yeah. commentary is about yeah. news and politics. He this also, like, and what, like, why can't there be a recognition that there has been since John Stewart? like really brought the daily show to prominence. There has been the evolution of a whole new genre of comedy that merges commentary and comedy. Why are you like, why are you like, why are you saying these two things have to be separate when over the last 20 years, there has been a whole new genre that merges them as evidenced by John Oliver and Stephen Colbert and Republican, like Fox News, the Grunfeld guy or like whatever, Greg Grunfeld. Like there's been, there has been a whole new genre of this that exists. Like it's a thing that you you share news and you crack jokes about it. And like, and my very, like Rob, Rob, my very point (laughs) My very point is no idea what we're arguing about. So, if (laughs) listeners, if you've ever wondered what it's like to be on the bus with us, it's just this constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Not not quite constantly. (laughs) Rob, I'm saying there are many ways to be comedic. John Stewart has picked a mode of being comedic. This is what I was saying earlier. There are many other ways to be comedic. He picked a particular path. I'm not saying comedians shouldn't make social commentary. I'm saying not every comedic approach is the same. And that what John Stewart did previously on The Daily Show and then justified by saying I'm not a political commentator was a style of political humor. There are many other styles of political humor. John Stewart picked one when he came back on Monday night a week ago and said, I'm going to host on Monday nights through the election. He brought back up the old style. Since then, a lot of other things have developed. There's a lot of comedic room, but he went back to that same-ism thing that he used to do. That's what I was saying from the very beginning. He has to pick, does he want the style of comedian that I'm not on a side, I pick at both of them, or does he say, I have a particular vantage point and I'm going to use my staff of writers and millions of dollars of production value to make that humorous? That's the point. I'm not saying I guess I come back. I guess I come back to my fundamental question that I asked, like before you were even finished is why does he have to pick? And I guess I'm not going to convince you that there's because (laughs) why can't he just go on the show and talk about what he wants to talk about in the way he wants to talk about it? Well, I guess viewers can decide whether or not they want to watch and that will determine whether or not Comedy Central wants to continue to 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 air the show based on. Audience size, which determines, you know, the the cost of of advertising. My point is, the critiques that people are bringing is based on that it's it feels worn out and in bad taste to use that approach. I'm telling you what the critiques are. John Stewart can do whatever he wants. Of course, 
I'm not here to police John Stewart. I'm saying the reason there are people and the reason there's a news story, the reason we're talking about it now, the reason uh, uh, Keith Oberman and all these other people talked about it is because it is an indicator that people looked at this and said, wow, John, of all people, you picked that approach to come back with? That's where the critique is. That's why in Oberman's thing, I thought it was great. He said, please make it another nine years before you come back because feels worn out. And I feel like as soon as that critique came, tell me if you're not there, you were, you were like, Hey, don't critique John Stewart. He can critique Joe Biden, but you know, he just does whatever he wants. Okay. But I'm just trying to explain why people get frustrated by this stuff. And it's actually a larger commentary on how people get their news and, and the fact that at least in my view, all news is not the same news. Sure. That's, that's sort of the point. Okay. I think, as Yabbit said, we are agreeing at the top of our lungs. Uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> what a, what a yeah. day for me to have a hard stop at 1030. Um, <laughs> we're not. Because you're going to miss out on, uh, <laughs> on the real oh. fun stuff. GOP House Intel right. Chair, unbothered by indictments of key witness in Hunter Biden investigation. And let me just say, Rob has to go because he has a hard stop. He has another meeting. So he's not leaving because... <laughs> of, uh, leaving That's because it! Of I'm out! Slam the laptop shut. As I often say at church or in any presentation, when somebody has to leave in the middle of it, never miss a good walkout. I mean, always, <laughs> yeah. uh, always make, a, make a moment uh, when, you're, when you're marging out. So uh, last word, Rob, because it's now hard stop 1030. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed your moment of zen. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, all right. Bye, Rob. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, that was a lot. Hey, yeah. Okay. So House, uh, for people that aren't following this story, the person who the House Committee on Impeaching Joe Biden used as their primary witness giving testimony as to what Hunter Biden did and thereby what Joe Biden did. That person has now been charged by the FBI for lying about those things. And he is being criminally indicted for lying about those things. That's what's happening. And the House Intel Committee that's leading the impeachment, the head of it said, it doesn't bother us that the person who was the chief witness <laughs> lied about those things. We should keep going forward. And it just it's it's in a world of just utter nonsense. But that's the wild thing about this whole MAGA universe is anytime something like this happens, uh, comes out that uh, the FBI is pressing charges against you for lying, it's just the deep state, uh, you know, trying to mess up Trump's yes. run for president. So it's this Just perpetual locking, martyr locking cycle of anytime there's an attempt at justice or whatever from the other side, you can't believe that it's actually true because your team is constantly right and constantly oppressed and persecuted. Exactly. And it's not even that they're against everything the FBI does or everyone the FBI arrests or all the investigations that they're doing. There's a lot of people they want the FBI to be investigating. Mm -hmm. But when that investigation, which they say is, is accurate and right and part of the justice system, is directed at anyone who's related to Trump or is attacking Biden, then they call it political persecution. And they're comparing it to uh, Putin and Navalny and all the rest of this. It's just 
utterly insane. Mm-hmm. Um, Know that uh, that this is the uh, this is the, that this is the way this has gone, and it just shows you it's just sheerly political. It's not built on the facts of that that simply don't exist. But they're just going to keep going with this because Donald Trump has told these House members, "I want you to impeach Joe Biden so that in the election we can have sameism. Mm-hmm. We were both impeached because things are just political. So make it as political as you can, so we can show <laughs> that impeachment." Are just political, right? Th- this is great for them. If they can make this seem more and more and more political, then it just makes people think, yeah, politics is just political. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Yeah, lawsuits, so all political. Be. Yep. Yep. Everything, just political persecution. Yep. And, you know, run of the mill. That's just how it's done. So get used to it. Mm-hmm. And Well, should we get to our final note, which is that the UN is actually saying that... Um, Israel needs to stop what it's doing in Gaza and the UN is joining with the rest of people of conscience around this world that what Israel continues to do is just reached a level of being unconscionable. And um, the Biden administration is starting to come out in these same ways and they're calling for a ceasefire and at the UN and um, the United States needs to back this idea that there has to be a ceasefire. They cannot continue to support the way Israel is choosing to prosecute this war. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, November, December, January, four months into it. I mean, look, I have not been to Gaza, so I can't personally vouch for how big the place is, but I can see a map. Four months of response in a place like Gaza, military response, and only in part of Gaza, if you haven't accomplished this in four months, whatever you thought you were going to accomplish, then then your goals seem to be either unattainable or unrealistic because this, what, what they're doing and the harm that they're bringing and the trauma and the people that they're damaging in this is, dis, is now disproportionate. I mean, I think it's been disproportionate since nearly the start, yeah. um, but it's been a disproportionate response uh, that is untenable. Yeah, and uh, it's good to see that the Biden administration has been quietly pushing uh, in the background for a ceasefire, some sort of end to this. Uh, but now the U.S. has come out and drafted this U.N. resolution where, you know, a month or two ago, we vetoed a resolution for a ceasefire. And so I apparently enough has been enough. Uh, I don't know what the number of civilian deaths is that the Biden administration was finally like, okay, we can't keep avoiding this. We have to do something. So hopefully this UN resolution goes through. Hopefully it has some weight to it um, Mm -hmm. because that's the thing with these resolutions is they're usually non-binding. It's just like, Hey, it'd be a good idea if you'd stop the genocide, please. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And yeah. Any, any, permanent member can veto these things. So Russia will probably veto it. Like it's probably not going to come with the weight of the UN to whatever good that even does. Right. Like, you know, the UN resolutions are only as powerful as the agreement that the member nations are willing to, to grant it. Um, But it does say something. If the United States joins together with other military or with other um, government responses, it it does say something. And you're right. Look that the U S will draft this because they didn't, weren't supportive of the previous resolutions. So they've drafted one that the United States can support. Um, And they need to do this. The United States needs to 
speak on behalf because the United States is supportive of Gaza. Like, let's be clear, right? The United States is not only on one side of this thing and we're not doing our job to protect the people in Gaza with diplomatic and, um, and military, uh, uh, support. It's, it's not, it, it, it is, it is not something that anyone in this administration is supportive of. That has been clear for months now that mm-hmm. there's been a split with the Netanyahu government and they're trying to work all this stuff diplomatically. And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm no, I'm no war. I'm, I'm, you know, no, no war at nearly any moment. You know, there might be some exceptions, but this kind of uh, bombardment and response is just so over the top in my mind. It's just and just no intentionally malicious and vindictive. You order out millions of people, tell them they have to leave their homes because we're going to bomb this area of your country, and then you bomb the area that they flee to. Say, so, oh, this is the next yeah. area. And so these people have been displaced and then displaced again. And like you said, this isn't a large territory. There's nowhere to go. So (laughs) there's no resources. I saw a thing uh, recently that half of Palestinians are at risk of starvation because aid isn't getting through. There's no running water. There's no infrastructure. They're bombing the hospitals. It's just unbelievable. And the frustrating thing about with UN and resolutions and all this, it moves at a glacial pace. And meanwhile, yes. every day more bombs are being dropped and less food is getting in. And so while you know people are trying to find a political solution, and we should, we should be finding that solution, uh, people are suffering in the meantime. And it's just really tough to watch. Yeah. Yeah, and and the United States has an obligation to speak on behalf of those who are impacted by Israel's choices. Mm-hmm. Whether Israel is, you know, seen as our ally, which it clearly is, or not, it has the responsibility to speak on behalf of the people who live in Gaza and you know, as mentioned in the comments, increasingly in the West Bank and that's going to come under um increased attack. And again, these are small, small areas, you know, 30 miles by four miles wide kind of thing. Like what on earth is the plan here that has not already been accomplished? Um, And Yabich uses the phrase called collective punishment. And it feels like that's what Israel is doing, right? Breaking the back of people so they would stop supporting Hamas and all the rest of it. And it's, um, I, I don't know, and I, I try to follow this stuff, and I do not know what Israel's goal is. I don't know what the outcome is because when it's stuff like we're gonna we're going to capture or kill every Hamas leader, it's like no, you're not. Of course, you're not. Like that is <laughs> unreasonable. Yeah, of course you are not. And and if 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 that if that can be the license that you have, well, there's still some somewhere. Well, then, then, then you're you're just into amoral warfare, if yeah. warfare could ever be considered moral. But this is this is just totally off the hook. Yeah, and I, you know, a lot of the friends I talk to are like, "Well, what do we do? Because protests don't seem to work. The petitions aren't working. How does yeah. anything like this get fixed in our world?" And I don't have a great answer to that. No, and and I mean, here's here's the hard part. We don't want. 
U.S. public sentiment in protests and petitions to be setting U.S. global policies when it comes to military conflicts. That is not the way this should go. So uh, I'm in almost constant disagreement with our government over its use of military around the world and force and warfare and all. And I should not be able to be loud enough where the government's like, hey, sorry, we got, we, we can't do what, you know, the experts and the people deeply committed to international affairs believe we should do because citizens are saying this thing, because that leads us to mob rule. I mean, this is, this is the, the problem, right? When you feel like you're in the right, then you're, then it's easy to say you should listen to all of the citizens. But after 9-11, when the majority of Americans were like, go bomb them all and bomb them till they're gone, that was not the right response of the American people. So this is the other tension point on this, is what is the role in a democracy of our population in relationship to our policies about how other countries utilize the force we give them or how we utilize our own military? It's really hard. We don't want to be taking polls of the American people and be like, well, 62% think we should do this and that because we're not experts on this. Our opinions are all over the place. Our opinions are conflicted. This is what makes it hard. And then you see things that are just atrocious and you expect that the professionals will also recognize Mm -hmm. that that is, is atrocious. But we have to trust that our government's of the United States is going to be moral enough that it will see the very things we see and will call for the very same change. But but it's hard because we kind of feel like... The, well, you know, we have a um, bad track record of being on the right side of morality in wars. So to trust that we'll get it right this time is a, is a tall order. Totally. For our governments and for our populations. You know, it, it, it's... <laughs> So, so this stuff is really, um, it is, it is so frustrating, which is why when war and military violence is an option, the consequences are so high because we don't have governmental or societal moral fortitude and structures to make sure this is going to work properly. Well, this was an intense day. (laughs) Well, that's an intense world out there. So it's an there you go. There you go. It's an intense world. Hey, if you're in the Holland, Michigan area, Dan and I are going to be uh, kicking around at the Holland AMC Theater Saturday afternoon and evening, watching the God and Country film and then doing a little talkbacks uh, after it. Go to votecommongood.com, find that. Um, and uh, if you're going to be in Minneapolis, we're watching the film on Sunday night here in the Minneapolis area. So, Kimberly, come to the Riverview Theater at 5 p.m. on Sunday. There's a showing of God and Country, and a bunch of us are going to be there. I'm going to try to do a little thing there. Um, and then lots of other activities happening uh, as we really start ramping up into our get on the road uh, work that we do at Boat Common Good. So thanks for being a part of the podcast today, everybody. Yep. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.